In this episode of Running Eyes, sensitive topics such as suicide, sexual abuse, and self-harm are discussed. Listener's discretion is advised. Hello, my name is Corey Durbin, and you have found Running Eyes. In this podcast, we will take a deep dive into the relationships, strategies, and global mission of Alliance for Shared Health to change healthcare and change lives. Sometimes, we will travel on parallel paths with others who have dared to journey through the challenges of life in pursuit of a purpose bigger than self. As we travel these roads together, I believe you will find encouragement from either their connection to Ash or their resolve for the commitment and strength it takes to vigilantly pursue their passions. Welcome to Running Eyes. Well, we're back, and uh, I have with me today Joe Lawson. Joe Lawson works for Sharks. Uh, Sharks is a company that uh, works with large employers and with members of our health share program to help them access high-cost prescription drugs. Uh, we've heard from Paul Pruitt before on, on this podcast and le- learned more about what Sharks is, so some of you may have, have heard a little bit about Sharks, but Joe's been with the company almost a year, coming up on a year. Yeah. Uh, he is one of our really key advocates and also lead trainer for sharks and helps uh, our new uh, new advocates learn how to do the job that they do, which is just critical in helping members and employees of large employers access these high-cost drugs that they otherwise would be left in the dark uh, without access to those. So, Joe, thank you for being with us today. Really glad to spend the time with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm honored to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Good. Well, so you've been with Sharks almost a year. Is it August is August the year is for you? Yeah. And before you were with Sharks, as I recall, you kind of were moving around quite a bit. I sure was. At what point, uh, give, tell us a little bit about your journey and as far as, uh, you know, some of the various places you've lived. You, you grew up in St. Louis? Grew up in St. Louis, yeah. I grew up in St. Louis. I met my partner or my ex-partner um, here in St. Louis. We uh, we're together for about 10 and a half years before we split just recently, but um, his mom lives in St. Petersburg, Florida. Okay. So within our relationship, every other summer or every summer for a few years, we would go down there and spend, you know, a month there, two months there, and we just fell in love. And so we made it a goal to move to Florida and kind of start a fresh life there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spent about five years in St. Petersburg, Florida. And then uh, my partner, he was an art student. Um, He ended up dropping out of the school that he was in. Um, He felt like it was just a little too much money. I mean, it was, I think it was uh, some year and a half and he was already over. That was in Florida at the time? Yes, that was in Florida. Um, So he ended up wanting to go into a uh, atelier, which is like a French art school, French name for an art school. Um, And we had toured several different places. Uh, We were in um, Pennsylvania, Seattle, and he finally found one in Arizona that was exactly what he was wanting. So um, I think it was January of 2020, we actually moved from St. Petersburg to Arizona, um, started a new life there. January 2020, that's a, just a couple months really before COVID hit, right? Exactly. Yeah. So then COVID hit and it just totally ruined everything. And his art school actually closed. Um, my school did not. I was going to start at ASU. Um, but because his art school closed and I was out of a job because of COVID, um, we decided to move back home. 
back so, to St. Louis then at that point. Back to St. Louis. Yeah, that's correct. So, so at that point, uh, you had uh, getting back to how'd you get to Sharks? Uh, well, you moved back to St. Louis in that February-ish of, of 2020 timeframe or so a little I'm, longer, a little later than that? little later i we stayed there until throughout june oh you were smart enough to stay through the winter right <laughs> yeah. yeah that's right um but then i was talking to shannon who was also an advocate here and she was like maybe i could get you a job and i was like that would be a dream come true to have a job lined up before my move back home because it wasn't really a move that we necessarily wanted to make you know we moved out of st louis for a reason a lot of you know past trauma so Moving back home was a big, big decision to make. So um, having this job lined up was just perfect. Okay. So we moved back July. So July of 2020, you started with Sharks in August of 2020. What's your job like at Sharks? And how has uh, your uh, Sharks journey, I guess, progressed since the time you, you got here in August? Um, so my job at Sharks is a, the members advocate, like you said. Um, I talk to people all day. I help them get their medication. I deal with, you know, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, you know, all that stuff. Uh, very rewarding job, you know. Um, but, you know, and since I've started, I've been here for almost a year and I'm already, you know, training to become a trainer, the senior advocate, which is amazing, you know, the growth and opportunities here has been pretty astounding so well uh, as you know i live up in the pacific northwest and traveled back and forth maybe every six weeks or so and your name was always one i heard about uh and and thankfully we have an incredibly great staff and it didn't take long for you to become a favorite around here and the work that you do and the impact that we have uh because of our team and our advocates uh, is is life changing for so many people? I asked you the other day what it was like, or you know, what, what's your favorite part about working at Sharks? Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I would say my favorite part is the feeling when you call that member and they're able to get their insanely high cost medication that without Sharks they would not, they simply would not be able to afford. Um, you know, I've had people cry on the phone because they're just so thankful. I've had people, you know go on the website and wish me Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and stuff like that. So those would definitely be my favorite moments in Sharks, just the reward feeling after helping them get something they, they really thought they would never get. Um, but also the opportunity to move up, you know, and to grow. I mean, this is such a new company. So to be able to have that opportunity to grow with the company is really another favorite thing for sure. What's it like? What's the team of people that you work with like? Um, they're, they're awesome. They're awesome people. I got, you know, I got great friends. Um, a lot of the people that I work with, I've known previously, great advocates. Um, I work under Amanda. She is basically the supervisor for all the advocates. She makes sure that we get things done, you know, in an appropriate time frame, And she helps us anytime we need help all the time, really. She's pretty much up out of her seat helping us all day long. But it's a good team. I feel like we're, you know, a real nice, close-knit family between the advocates. So. Yeah, well, when I arrived here maybe two or three visits ago, I heard this bell ringing. And uh, I was like, what in the world is that, <laughs> is that bell? Yep. So tell us about the bell. I think that was actually um, a result of Amanda. She decided that, you know, when we get our members approved for the patient assistance program, which basically is 
allowing them to get the medication for free from the manufacturer. And these are very expensive medications, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes even millions of dollars a year, correct? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when you know if the bell's ringing like really hard, that <laughs> means that it was a really big med. Um, but yeah, when they get approved, we ring the bell for every individual person. So it's kind of just a way to make everybody happy and celebrate. Celebrate together, yeah. So, okay. you, and you know, you talked um, briefly about some trauma and that that had, I don't know, I guess had happened to you. And when you get to work in a company like I think ours is, where you have this culture of people that begin to feel like these are people I really am glad to be around every day, uh, then you start to feel a little bit like there's, it's easier to have conversations that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have. Is that a fair statement? Sure. Yeah, it is. And we went, uh, we had the opportunity to go to a baseball game together with, with Shannon as well and with one of my business partners, John. And we just started talking about life a little bit and you brought up some of this trauma. And I don't know a better way to ask than just, can would you would you mind sharing a little bit about where that story starts and what what happened there a little bit yeah so really we kind of going back a little bit we were always planning to move to florida my ex-partner and i um but uh, december of 2014 so january of 2015 is where things started to get really really bad um where we kind of felt like we had no choice at that point to move there but when i was it started like the actual abuse started when i was 13 um, my uncle started molesting me when I was 13. Um, I'd say the grooming started a little bit before that. Um, and that went on for years. That went on until um, the end of 2014. So. Uh, and you're, how old are you now, Joe? I'm 28. So 13, so about 15 years ago. Yeah, it so was 2005 or six. Yeah, a week ago we talked with Kristen Ernst, who's a licensed therapist, and you and I talked a lot about mental health. And one of the reasons I think you were willing to sit down is it's helpful, you know, on a personal level for you to be able to share your story. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think you also feel like maybe you can help other people through some of their own trauma. Uh, will you tell me about what what you mean by grooming? So not by definition, you know, but grooming is basically when a predator, so to say, is trying to almost prepare the victim for what's to happen. Um, you know, examples of my experience were like he knew. So there was one day where I was starting to grow pubic hair. Mm-hmm. I shaved it for the first time and it was awful. It hurt so bad. Um, and he said he wanted to teach me how to do it. So he was like, come back to my apartment. At that point, he didn't, he didn't live where the abuse was happening mostly. He lived in the city. So he said, come back to my apartment. I'll show you how to, you know, shave your pubic hair. Okay. Um, but that's just one example. You know, other times where let's go skinny dipping. Uh, let, let, let me pay for a whole new carpet for your bedroom. Let me, you know, buy you this, buy you that. A lot of it was just like making me trust him, appreciate him, love him. And, you know, there's so many examples. Let's. So without, this was without anything necessarily inappropriate. I mean, this is already inappropriate, of course, but without 
necessarily physical touching that was inappropriate. Right. Yeah. Like it had not officially started yet, but it was a lot of gift giving. Like he knew I wanted to start working out. I mean, I was in middle school, knew I wanted to work out. So he gifted me his workout bench. You know, he would just give me things to make me, I guess, like him more, trust him more. But it's also grooming happens to not just me. It happens to everybody, which is kind of why whenever people come out about stuff like this, they can't seem to accept it and believe it because they've been groomed themselves and they don't even know it. You know, part of the mental process for the victim and make no mistake you're your victim here is this idea of this is my friend. This is somebody who I, he likes me, she likes me, whatever. And I can, I should be able to trust them. Yeah. So it's incongruent. The things that happen become really incongruent. Yeah. I mean, I would call him uncle Denny, you know, we'd go to pasta house. I'd want to sit right next to him. It was like, that was my best friend looked up to him. You know, that was almost like my father figure that wasn't a father figure. So he, you call him Uncle Denny. Uh, your your father passed away when you were when I was nine. Nine, and uh, was was he sick? Um, he passed away. So it's kind of a combination of things. Um, I actually found this out recently when I was in Florida. What really caused it? But the death certificate was like an overdose. So he was drinking oh, no. and he was okay. on medication too. I think it was um, methadone. So he was just, I think it just slowly slowed his heart down too much um, and it killed him. But he had underlying issues too. Like he had really, really severe clogged arteries, uh, come to find out. Um, he actually had a lot of bleeding to the brain because prior to him dying, his best friend punched him when they were drunk at a bar together. And um, But yeah, he died because of an overdose. Me- method- methadone? Mm-hmm. And again, what, what te- is that a medication? Or I don't know anything about. You know, I don't know the specifics, but I do know that I believe it's used for people who are addicts. And it's a way to help them get off of the, like, heroin, for example, and to use the methadone as a way to, like, it's kind of like a bridge to get clean. Okay. Um, The problem is with that is that it still can get you high. Mm. still can get you messed up. So a lot of people still abuse it. Um, So it's it's a little bit... Maybe it sounds like the opio, opioids, you know, that there's a hesitation for those to be made available like through a telemedicine provider or through mail order because there's strong likelihood of those becoming something that is addictive. They're mm-hmm. addictive and, and cause other challenges. So so you're, you're nine when your father passes away and that in and of itself had to be really difficult for you at that time for sure yeah i i actually remember the day it happened very vividly i was playing nintendo in my underwear my mom came in and she's like we got to go pick up your sisters both um manda and jamie you know those are my real sisters so we share the same father and she just said we got to go pick them up i was like for why what's going on she's like i'll tell you whenever we get them in the car you know after we go pick them up and we're all together i'll tell you well then i was i was nine years old no no tell me now tell me now then she finally told me that he had a heart attack and he didn't make it and it was just i just lost it i lost it i remember brushing my teeth like crying brushing my teeth just sobbing and my my stepsisters just watching me just in pure shock like they didn't know what to do. They were also very young too, but they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. But yeah, it was it was a pretty rough day. 
if you can imagine. Well, in the spot I'm in now, in this chair, trying to maintain <laughs> the uh, chuckling is because it's, it's easier than crying. You know, I maintain an ability to ask you questions, just feeling a, this strong sense of sadness uh, come over me and knowing, man, this is... And then this leads to... So your mom remarries, which, of course... Just about anyways, you know, you're going to find new relationships. And, and so your mom remarried, and now you call this man Uncle Dennis. So he wasn't your blood uncle. Uh, and then he ends up, eventually you moved into a house that had a pool house. Mm-hmm. So just a little backstory. My mom married, well, his name is Dave. My my stepdad is Dave. She married him, I think, in 2008. I think it was 8808. I'm pretty sure that was the day they got married. So he was basically in my life since I was two up until today, but they didn't marry till I was 16. So it took a long time, but we've, I've lived with the joint family since I was two. Um, your but, folks were divorced. So he was in your life when you were two, right. just following along here. Okay. Yeah. yeah gotcha. A, and then we moved into the house where I grew up from about sixth grade and up. Um, and that is where the pool house was. And that is where, um, my uncle stayed. He lived in that pool house. So this was uh, sometime around the age of nine then when, was it prior to uh, your dad's death when this was already happening with your uncle or was it it after? It was after for sure. You know, I I really think what kind of started the whole thing was their family business because, you know, one year we got a hot tub and for some reason it just sparked this idea to start a family business and the family business is what brought them closer and closer and closer and that's whenever he decided to move in but when he when the the abuse started he was not currently living on the property he was living in the city still um it wasn't until i want to say i don't know for sure when he moved in but it was probably about maybe six months to a year after the abuse had started. At that point, I was probably around 14. Mm. But forgive me, I don't know if that's for no, sure. No, you, you don't need to, to apologize at all. I want to make sure I'm following along correctly on the timelines, which it actually now, I recall, indicated it was around. Uh, we, we talked about it being around 13 or 14, 15 years ago. Uh, and so there got to be, a, there, there was a point in time where uh, this came out, if you will, yeah. and in our discussions, when you know from from the other night, it sounded like you. This wasn't something you were going to necessarily bring out. Can you talk a little about how? Can you talk about how that kind of came out, or what happened um, where it was this revelation came to be? Yeah. So, like I said, it went on for a long time. At this point, I was a, a, an adult, you know, and it was still happening, but out of pure fear of what could happen if I come out, I just never let it come out. And even with my ex-partner knowing about it for pretty much almost the whole duration of the abuse, he knew about it. I had friends who knew about it, but I guess they just respected me enough to to not out me. Mm. I don't know if I could do the same, you know, but um, the way it actually came about was one night he came home really, really drunk. He actually always ate at the same Mexican restaurant um, right by our house. He would get drunk and then he'd come right back home. Nick, that's my ex-partner, he was working. He worked for like till about 3 a.m. 
my parents were in Branson, so it was just me at the house. You know, my sisters were not there, and he came home really drunk, and he was just very, very persistent, very pushy. And I want to make it clear, you know, there's people in positions like mine, they go through far worse than some of the things I went through. You know, I almost think of myself as lucky it was not as bad as it could have been. You know, he never, like, tied me to a wall. He never, like, you know, beat the crap out of me. It was nothing quite that extreme, but he was very persistent. He wouldn't stop when I would say no. He wouldn't stop when I would walk away. Um, I just remember I was in my bedroom. I was trying to make my bed, and he came home drunk. He comes over. He starts touching on me. You know, I say stop. I say go away. He doesn't listen. Then I go back upstairs to check and see if the comforter was done drying in the dryer. He follows me all the way up there still doing the same thing. I kind of got to the point to where like at, at that point in time, I was just, I could not take it anymore. I was kind of cracking. Um, I, I, I didn't really know what to do. How old were you roughly? Um, well, I, it was 2015, I'm 28 okay. now. So okay. I'd say like, I don't, I don't know for sure, 22, I think at the yeah, time, okay. 23 maybe. Um, but I was just cracking, you know, at that point, like I didn't want it, but there were times where like, it just would happen. You know, it had gone on for so long. That was all I really knew. But at that point in time, I was just done and I couldn't do anymore. I couldn't live like that. And I went in the bathroom and I locked the door and I texted Nick. I also texted Shannon, who, um, who works here. And I said, you know, like, this is what's happening. I'm in the bathroom. I cannot live like this anymore. This early, wee hours of the morning, right? Yeah, it was late oh. at night. It was it was probably midnight. Okay, one. so not not as early as I thought, but still. So, well, and so after I sent those texts, my phone was dying. Like, I was really, really panicking. My phone was almost dead. I had to put it on airplane mode and just pray that something happened and mm -hmm. then turn up the music because he was banging on the door. He was banging. He was rattling at the door trying to get in. And then I I didn't know for sure if this is what happened, but I, I kind of just assumed. He started really banging and screaming at the door and... Um, I can't remember the words he was saying necessarily, but you know, the music is on and I just knew that Nick had said something. So Nick actually texted him and was just saying like, you know, this is, this is out, this is coming out, this is over, you know, because prior to that day, actually, Nick confronted Dennis okay. and said, I know what you're doing. Don't touch him again. Stop touching him. Um, mm. Anyway, so I don't really know how long I was in that bathroom with the music playing and him outside the door. I just remember the dogs finally started barking and going crazy, which meant that somebody was pulling up, and that person was Shannon. So Shannon saved me that night. It's, it's actually a really hard topic for her to talk about, too. I would imagine. Uh, but yeah, so she came in, and once she got there, he walked away. He, he just left, and I guess he went to the pool house. Um, and then shortly after that, Nick's mother pulled up. Uh, with a shotgun. So Shannon got to the house first. Yeah. And once she got there, he goes outside. Nick's yes. mom comes over with a shotgun. Yes. Which I laud her for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and she didn't threaten him, I don't think. Well, actually, you know what? She did end up texting him, and she's like, you know, if you come near him again, I'll blow your brains out. It's basically what she said. Um, and she texted him as well. I think at, the, at that point I was finally in bed. I was actually sleeping. So I woke up to her saying, I just want to let you know, don't freak out, but Dennis is gone. I texted him. I told him that he needs to go and that the secret is coming out. Did it feel good to finally have somebody actually stand up for you or was it unnerving 
you know, at first, because what's what's Dennis going to do? I'm actually getting goosebumps that when you talk about that, it was one of the hardest times. Um, at that point, I didn't feel good that it had happened. I was just so scared. I was just so scared. And, you know, I remember Nick had to go to work. This was actually New Year's night. Nick had to work. Shannon wasn't with me. His mom was somewhere at that point. Um, and I was just, I remember just trying to play the Xbox and I'm like, I couldn't stop turning my head. Like, is he, is he coming to get me? Is he going to kill me? Cause I thought he was going to kill me. I thought for sure he was going to come get me. And the only way he could prevent the secret from coming out was killing me. Like those were the thoughts I was having. So I was getting paranoid. I was terrified. I was also like just freaking out, trying to imagine telling my mom what had happened. So did it feel good that it was that it was over yes but at that point I really wasn't feeling good at all I was also and I don't know if a lot of people will understand this I was also really worried for him I was scared I was I would imagine him like sleeping in the cold out in his, his van you know there there's just something about abuse and especially long term where you just grow this like weird care for the abuser and so I was really upset about that too. You know, mm. granted, I hate the guy. I want, I, I, I you know, I, I don't wish, I don't really try to wish ill things on anyone, but I don't have anything but negative things to say about him. Um, but I was really worried that he was in the cold or is he okay? Is he going to kill himself? Those were all my thoughts. And it was a really hard time. Well, Joe, I mean, I think as I told you the other night, I mean, you're absolutely amazing to sit here and, and, tell your story uh when i i asked were you did you feel a sense of relief or did it feel good uh and i didn't ask because it was over because it sure as heck wasn't over and it's not over right i mean the abuse is over but it's not something that goes away and uh, but i my question was really centered around did it feel good to have somebody finally stand up for you you don't you already answered the question i just want to you know you deserve to have been stood up for a long time before that, in my opinion. And you get, this starts happening to someone when they're as young as you were. It's, I mean, it's got to be incredibly confusing because this is somebody that you trust. And uh, you're, there's way too much of this that happens in our society. Uh, and I, I just can't imagine what you know as you go through that process you've got this person that's family essentially an extension of as a father figure you end up it's the the confusion must just still exist with you today yeah and you know what's crazy is he i didn't find this out until i had come out but after i had come out he came out that he was also abused um by someone at the church um and the, the guy actually admitted to it. And what's very strange, and I, 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 I pray that that would have never been my type situation. He was actually, would, would still, to that day, see the guy who abused him for so many years and talk to him. And who knows what he would tell them, tell him, you know, who knows if he knew about me, you know, who knows? Because he would come to our Christmases, the guy who abused Dennis. He would come to our Christmases. He was close with the, the their side of the family. And I can't help but wonder if he would look at me and know what Dennis was doing. I can't help but have those thoughts. But going off what you were saying, it happens 
so often you wouldn't even you wouldn't even imagine how many people this kind of thing happens to and that's kind of why i'm here today just to normalize the conversation and also it gives me a uh you know a release to talk about it and share because for so long i kept it locked up for to protect everybody else you know i was protecting everybody else so and i just and i instead i was just killing myself and I want people to hear my story, even if it's not the worst situation they've ever heard and think I need to say something or I'm not alone. You know, like if I had somebody that came to me when I was going through the process of coming out about it and dealing with the legal stuff, it would have made the biggest difference because at that point in time, it was almost as hard as the years of abuse. You know, I had lost family. I was so paranoid. I was so scared. Um, I felt so alone. All I really felt like I had was Nick and my oldest sister, Jamie. You know, those were like my fighters through the whole thing. But I felt so, so alone. And it's crazy that I can feel so alone and everybody knows about it, you know, because at that point, I didn't think it would be as big as it was, but it hit the paper. Um, you know, I ended up having a whole trial and court case with it. A lot of people knew. A lot of people knew that I didn't feel comfortable with knowing too. So it was like, after years of hiding it, it was finally time to talk about it, but I really wasn't ready for everybody to know about it. But that whole, that whole year of my life was a lot of like, everything was happening, it was just out of my control. And um, a lot of the processing work I do with my therapist is for that year. When was the trial? It was, so it uh, started in 2015. It was actually right after I came out about it, I went to the police, so it was, it was right in the beginning of January when I went to the police. Um, and you know how it is, it takes a long time for things to happen. So I'd say it was probably the end of 2015 going into 2016 was like the end when it finally had ended, which is actually pretty quick compared to what how long most trials can take. Um, but yeah. So what were things like uh, with your family or what are they like now, maybe through the process of the hearing, as I, as I recall, your uncle was found guilty. Yes. Spent not nearly enough time in jail. I think you said four months. Yeah. And what developed, uh, fam what family dynamic has developed? Because I think it's a critical part of the conversation that is, it will be helpful for people to understand because I, I doubt that you're alone in what you've gone through. Yeah. So um, when it would first come out, I pretty much had lost the majority of my family you know I, I told you this prior but you know my sister was having her wedding that March just a few months or March or April just a few months after I had come out about all this and I wasn't even able to go to her wedding because she made the comment of I want Dennis to be there and of course if Dennis is there I can't be there you know then I had um, the other stepsister who when I first told her about it, she was all on my side. And then when she realized where her father stood, she just flipped. You know, my when I, when it first came out, my stepdad basically, him and his other brother, went and talked to Dennis the next day. And Dennis admitted to it, to doing what he did. Granted, he told him he thought it was a mutual thing. He thought we were together. But he admitted to it. Um, and, and that... And, I didn't last long where I felt like Dave was on my side. He was on my side for about a day, two days, and then after that, things just started to change. And I know the night that it started to change was he, he took me downstairs and he just cried in my bedroom with me, just us two. 
And he begged that I did not go to the police about all of it. He begged that I just... This is your stepdad. This is my stepdad. He just didn't want me... He did, you know, he says, like, I don't want to see my brother go to jail crying. And this is a grown man crying, you know, my stepdad for all of my life. um, Essentially trying to manipulate you. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And that, after that, I told him, you know, I don't know what you want me to do. I, I... I can't just not go to the police because you don't want to see your brother who did these horrible things go to jail. And that's when things started to change. He started to lie for him. He started to, 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 to deny that Dennis ever told him that he actually did it. It was a huge falling out. It was a really, really big falling out between the whole side of that family. You know, the, the day that I came out about it, her name is Denise. It was it's one of the brother's wives. She contacted me, first person and was like, I'm here for you, I'll do anything for you, I've gone through this. And then she ended up being the person who hid him in her house, so the police couldn't find him. So she was a former victim, knew what it was like, and then turned turned her back on you as well. Yes. And for me, what keeps coming up is the, uh, the word betrayal, and... The betrayal, it feels like, keeps happening over and over and over with just about everybody who learns and steps into your situation a little bit. Yeah, even my mom. And I don't don't want to say that, I don't want to tell these stories and like make people think I'm trying to put blame on them or make them feel bad for what they did. Because one of the biggest takeaways from the therapy I've had is that people are not trained to know how to respond to this. And it you know, especially when it's another family member, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to act. They don't know how to respond to you and me. It's, it's simple. You know, you protect the victim and you know, you do what's right. But for other people, they just don't quite get that. It's, it's, it's just complicated. But even my mom, I felt like betrayed me and she carries a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt to this day um, about all of it. It's a really tangled web, this this cliche, it's a tangled web we weave, you know, and there's all this interconnectedness of family members and what's going to happen. Sometimes this none of this is said to rationalize it, any of the behavior that happened, but, but just thinking out loud with you about what's going on in other people's mind that would think it's okay not to focus on you and focus on what happened to you and you know, from we, I don't want our family to be shamed, you know, to be this public embarrassment. I don't want our family to fall apart. I don't, I don't want to, and fill in the blank, right? And then people who you want to be able to trust and say, look at me, look at, look at what the pain that I'm in. They rationalize the decision that just piles on hurt that you're already in the midst of. Yeah. And it's funny that you said what you just said about like our family could fall apart. You know, that there was a whole handful of reasons why I kept it a secret. I didn't want my mom and my stepdad to get a divorce. I didn't want them to the family to fall apart. I didn't want them to lose the business together because they shared a business together. And, you know, I didn't want them to lose the house as well. That was another legitimate concern. And the day that I, the night that I told my stepdad and my mom, those were the exact words that came out of his mouth. It was almost like I was, li- I was dreaming. He's like, you know, we're not going to survive this. We're going to get a divorce. I just know we're going to get a divorce. The family's going to fall apart. We're going to lose the business. It was like all of my fears 
and all the reasons why I never said anything, it was like all came out. But when I was growing up, when I was 16 years old, it was kind of like at that point where I actually ran away from St. Louis. I ran away to Boston, Massachusetts with my best friend. Nobody understood why I ran away. Nobody knew why. It was just, they thought I was just this troubled kid. They all thought it was because I was closeted or something like that. But really it was just at that point where it's either I go or I can't live like this. And it was actually after I got caught by the police when I ran away, it didn't last too long. Which is probably best because all I brought was SpaghettiOs and... <laughs> but after that, after I got caught and I came back home, it was, I, I kind of had to just come to this realization where it's either I stop fighting what he's doing to me or I'm going to kill myself. You know, I, I, it was one or the other. I knew he wasn't going to stop and I, I wasn't ready to give up yet, but it was just one of those things where you know, you could say no a hundred times, but if it's still happening, you know that no matter how hard you're going to fight, it's going to keep happening. And I couldn't say anything. I couldn't tell anybody, you know. Well, so I'm, I'm with Joe Lawson. We were talking about uh, some of the, the major trauma that he experienced and also pivoting a little bit to the, the mental health aspect of things. And you, you just mentioned suicide, thinking about suicide. And let's, let's pause for just a minute and take a break. And, uh, We'll come back and we'll focus more on the on where we go from here. Yeah. So we're back with Joe Lawson, and uh, you know we start. You hit upon the idea of not sure how well didn't want to necessarily go on the way you were going. Something needed to change, and if it didn't change, uh, you you know having suicidal thoughts. And one of the things that struck me was just the idea that you know I don't think that anybody should feel like they're defined by what happens to them they're more defined by how they move on this this does this event these events this is a long time thing that was not just a one event it was years and years right yes and it doesn't define you yeah and i think we're both in agreement that uh your this, this conversation needs to feel like it's healthy for you first and uh and, and, and something that positively impacts your mental state. And then if we have an opportunity to hopefully speak to some people that have been through some really tough stuff in life. Yeah. Uh, and there are sexual abuse is certainly one thing. And there are other people that are going through some, some awful challenging events in their life. And so the mental health aspect of that is certainly important in whatever kind of challenges somebody's going through but but I do want you to know that this is I, I don't believe this defines you I think this has been something that has happened to you and uh, I want to pivot a little bit to hearing you talk just about the suicidal thoughts because suicidal ideation is a big part of bringing awareness and removing the mental uh, the stigma behind mental health and we talked about that with Kristen Ernst so uh, where were you in this process and I think you mentioned a, a date kind of in October of 2019 where it was really starting to get super challenging yeah uh, so I actually came back home to St. Louis, uh, October of 2019. I saw one of my sisters for the first time in years. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know if it was that that triggered it, uh, but it was shortly after that when my mental state just plummeted. I mean, it was panic attacks every single day, all day long. And it was out of nowhere. It was just triggered and it was out of nowhere. You know, I don't know if it was like a PTSD flare up, 
I, I don't know really what could have caused it, but I was anxious every day. I was having panic attacks. I couldn't work my job. I would, when I would go to my job, I would quite literally have a, such a severe panic attack that I would run out. Like imagine me running out of this building. That's what I would do at that job because I would just, I, I, I was freaking out. Our company would be in trouble if you ran out of the building, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> Don't <Yeah>. do that. <laughs> no. But I mean, I was really, really struggling. And, you know, I went to a doctor. Um, they prescribed me just like this basic medicine that would just basically kind of sedate me in a way. Think of like a Benadryl. Okay. Just calm me down. Um, but I was not seeing a therapist at that time. I had bounced around between two therapists before this, before it had happened, but I was not seeing anybody at that time. And that's something I really want people to uh, just keep in mind. Just because you're okay today does not mean that in a year you'll be okay. The way PTSD works, it, it hits you when you're least expecting it, and it really, it really messes up your life. So to get help is like the most important thing, and to being make it more of a regular type thing where you're seeing a therapist even if it's once a month and you're talking about things and you're processing things that is the most important thing especially for people who are in trauma because what i was doing was oh i would go to therapy but i don't feel like i'm that bad i don't feel like i'm really struggling that much so then i would stop therapy then a couple years would go by and i'm doing okay like i know i probably should go to therapy just because you know i'm i'm usually just an anxious person person anyway but i wouldn't go and then it got to the point to where my mental health got so bad. That's when I finally realized, oh my God, I need, I need help. I need help. But if I can give anybody advice is get the help before it gets to that point. Because when you're at that point, you feel like it's not going to, nothing's going to help. You know, um, the pandemic ended up hitting. Between the pandemic and my anxiety and the panic attacks and my depression, I was, I couldn't work. I was just sitting in the house every day having panic attacks, panic attacks so bad that like I would forget where I am, who I am. I would like recite to myself like my cat's name is Triton, Nova, my dog's name is Hamilton and Quinn. Like I would just say these thoughts over and over again to like bring me back to reality because they were so severe and they were constant. I mean, it, <clears throat> imagine living your life in like constant flight or fight. That's what I felt like. Like I was really underweight. I was exhausted every single day, and, you know, and even like my ex-partner he would be cooking me dinner we'd be sitting down in, in arizona about to start eating dinner and i would just be sobbing trying to eat my food because i just was a wreck and it really got to the point to where and i told nick this it's like you know e either i get help or i don't see me lasting much longer you know it was it was crazy because i had not felt like suicidal quite like that since i did when i was a teenager but fast forward to 2020 i was really at that point again where I could not fathom going on the way I was. And I got a therapist. Her name is Laura. She's still my therapist today. Even though I'm not in Arizona with COVID and stuff, we're able to communicate virtually. Um, I also got medicated. And between the two things, it truly changed my life. Like, I'm telling you, I would not be here today if it wasn't for that. You know, we would do like EMDR therapy. We would do brain spotting type therapy as well. And I don't know if you know what EMDR or brain spotting really is, but it's basically something where you like recall the traumatic events and it's like an eye movement type desensitization type thing. And, you know, we would process it. Like the majority of all of our sessions was a lot of just processing, processing, processing. Because even, even in, in 2020, I would look back at events that happened in 2017, something not even related to the abuse. And I would just 
feel anxious and panic. Like every memory, whether it was bad or good, was a trigger for me. So we had to spend a long time processing and just kind of like rewiring my brain to take the memories and process them and then let them pass, put it, put it past me. You know, at this point in time, we'll meet up for our therapy sessions and she's like, what do you want to do? And there are some days where I'm like, you know, maybe we can just talk today because I feel like I've come a long way. I feel like I have processed a lot of it, which is good. That's where you want to be. You want to be at to the point to where like you don't feel like it's consuming your everyday. You know, are there moments where I'm really bad? Yeah. There are days where they're worse than others. There are days where I'll see like this white van drive around and I'll think he's in there because that's what he used to drive. I don't even know if he still drives it, but I think he does. Um, there are really bad days and there are times where we just have to sit there and go back and forth for a whole hour of what it would be like if I ran into him at Walmart. How can I handle it? How can I prepare for it? How can I get past it? How can I not let it consume me or trigger me and make me spiral? Um, but that's really the most important thing, I think, is just getting the help that you need, even if you don't feel like you need the help today. You know, having that healthy mental state is so crucial and you don't realize how crucial it is until you don't have it. There's a medical term. Basically, you, people can't recognize that or they, they can't identify when their own body is feeling something when it when you don't feel good. And I'm, I'm not sure if that same term relates in the mental health world, but where you talk about, hey, uh, even if you think you're okay or sitting down with your therapist and saying, you know, or, or not necessarily going to therapy because you think, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, and all of a sudden, like, whoa, I, I'm not doing fine. And in the process of, you, you mentioned in your teens, feeling some, having some suicidal thoughts, did you ever try and take your own life? You know, I never tried to do it. I had like this whole idea in my head of how I would do it, and I won't go into detail about all of it, but I definitely self-harmed a lot. A lot, a lot. You know, like I got them all over my arms. I, that's why I have this owl on my chest because I actually, I was a, a burner. So I would just set a knife on fire for a real long time and then just slam it down. And I got a huge X on my chest. And that's why when my grandma died, I was like, I want to cover this up and make, I don't want to look in the mirror and see this anymore because that's not who I am today, you know? But it, it was a lot. It was a lot of self-harm. You know, even me and my friends would do stuff together because they are hurting and not getting the help they need. They're hurting because they're going through something similar and not telling people about it too, you know? So I didn't quite ever get to the point where I was close to doing it, but I definitely would still hurt myself to ease the pain a lot. Did anybody know when you were in your teens that these were thoughts you were having? Yeah, um, it's, it's so funny. I actually found this out recently. Uh, Sydney, she's an advocate here. We go way back to middle school and I did not know this until just like a week ago, but there was a time where I was hurting myself like that and her and my other close friend actually went to the school counselor. They were in the middle school. I think at that point I was a freshman. So they go to their middle school counselor, then they contact the high school. She brings me into the, the room and then they told my mom. But at that point in time, I was just like kind of like scratching myself and like trying to figure out like what am I doing with this this feels good but I don't know what I'm doing I was scared but fast forward about another year later that's whenever like the burning was really bad and my mom somehow found them because she knew about like the, the scratching and the silly stuff back then but she thought I was better but it was one summer she like lifted up my arm or something and she just sobbed she just was just hysterically crying. And to this, I think it sticks with her because anytime I'm wearing a long sleeve or anytime I'm wearing a hoodie, she's like, it's hot out, why are you wearing that? 
why, what are you doing? Why are you covering your arms up? Because she's just so scared that I'm hurting myself again, you know? You yeah. said something very, it, it struck me right, right at that moment. You said it feels good and is having some experience with knowing people who have had children that cut and not necessarily in my mind, I don't, I don't identify with that for in my own life and you use the word it feels good so is that true even of, of the burning like there was some mental aspect of it that you said this actually feels good yeah it, it, it would feel good um and it was it was like an adrenaline rush each time you did it it was like such a rush i mean you'd get the goosebumps the chills like it would just be a moment where you would, i would just like look it, it, I can't compare it to like using drugs, but it almost makes me think like what it's got to be slightly what that must feel like. Just like that rush, that release, that moment where it's like everything's fine for a second. You're letting it all out and then you're good for like a day or two. Have you, do you know what the science is behind that or have, is that a conversation you've had with therapists or anybody else to understand and and shed any light on what what that is? I don't know too much, you know, but I do know that Typically, people who are hurting themselves, it's because the pain that they're feeling inside, it's like a way to ease that a little bit. Let me take a little bit of the pain that I'm feeling in my brain and emotionally, and let me feel it physically, and maybe I'll be able to handle it then. So I think that's kind of the idea. I think that's why I did it too, where I was just feeling so much that if I could just take a little bit away and just put put a mark here, put a mark there, I would maybe I would help me get through it. Uh, but it's a it's a bad it's a bad road. To go down because it only gets worse you know you don't it wasn't until nick that i actually stopped and he basically told me like you know if you keep doing this we're, we're done um unfortunately it was him threatening me to make me stop this mm-hmm. was the x on my chest was the last thing i ever did um but yeah it's a really dangerous road to go down you know i don't know where i would be today if i didn't have somebody to help me stop doing what i was doing but i hated myself you know like when you go through stuff like that with abuse and when you go through you know my dad dying i was bullied in high school i was gay you know i was closeted for years when you go through that stuff like you you build this resentment towards yourself there you almost feel like i deserve this this is i I should be doing this Mm. this feels good but also like i hate myself so why not do it well to be absolutely clear no you didn't deserve that and none no one deserves that and uh that's unequivocally true in my mind. And in your sessions with therapist, with your therapist, what is the discussion? And how do you, how do you, is there a way to get somebody off this line of just the self harm? There are ways. Uh, and I can't speak for everybody because I, I, I almost feel like it becomes a full blown addiction. You know, it's kind of just something that you, you get such a rush and such a high from that it becomes really dangerous. And she's taught me ways where like, you know, mostly the things that she's taught me are for like my severe panic attacks, like what I should do. Like, for example, if I'm having a panic attack. She's taught me this method where I like put my arms up behind my head and I look to the left and I wait until I like swallow or like I yeah, like swallow or I think yawn. And then I look to the right and that's like a way to like reset something within your body, you know, or, you know, if I'm feeling like I'm panicking, go do some go do some squats because it takes so much of your body and your focus to like not fall over when you're doing it. But she has shown me ways to get past the things I'm going through each day. She's shown me ways to get past those thoughts of I'd love to do this right now, you know, and whether that be just getting a rubber band and, 
and pulling it and letting it go. There are ways to seriously get better with it. You know, there are ways to stop hurting yourself. There are ways to, there are other things you can do. And it's crazy to think about because I don't tell a lot of people this, but I'm also a trichotillomaniac, which is basically when you just pull your hair out. I don't really try to pull like my hair hair out, but um, a lot of people do. And a lot of people who pull their hair out, they, they pull it all out at once and then it doesn't ever come back because oh, it's wow. so... The follicles are so traumatized, but my legs are always patchy because ever since I was 18, I just yanked the hairs out. And I think that's, it may actually have taken the place of the, the burning, you know, as a way of like controlling something, but also feeling something when I'm pulling each hair out. But even that I work on every day. It's a process. It's a process. It's, it's a lifelong process. But like you said earlier, this isn't something that necessarily defines me. So what I was going through a year ago when my mental health was so bad, here I am today. You know, like I feel like I can tell my story and not go home and be triggered by the fact that I, you know, I had all, I talked about all this stuff. Because back in the day, if I talked about all of it, I'd go home and probably have a panic attack. I would cry. I would feel really depressed for a while. But with extensive therapy for stuff like this and for some people you know medication is really the the main thing too because for some people it's just simply a chemical imbalance you know mm-hmm. and only medicine can help that when we were uh when i got into town this week i like to walk around the office and say hello to everybody and and i stopped at your desk and you had, like today you had you know uh, your top button unbuttoned so I can see the top of the tattoo on your chest. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And I, I, you know, hopefully what was perceived as a really gentle and just inquisitive, I'd love to hear about that. Well, I asked you what's on your chest. And I am, I'm curious because everybody's got a story and everybody's got, you know, they, we've all been on journeys and we make, sometimes we, we forget that other people are either in the middle of something, they've gone through something and are probably about to go through something is sort of how life seems to work. When I casually ask you about that, does your mind go to if if he only knew or it, is it, can that be a trigger? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, I actually thought, so that day I, I, I felt like you were talking about the owl on my chest, but there, <laughs> I did feel myself tense up and get real awkward and just kind of like, Anyway, and just like hurry and go back to talking. I think I was talking with Shannon that day, but there were moments where I really thought like maybe he was talking about that scar on my chest, mm. you know? And if it was a year ago when you, when I, if talking about this, if it was a year ago, I would say that probably would trigger me today where I am. I don't think it does as, quite as much. You know, I am still ashamed of the things I did to myself, but I'm on a road to recovery, you know? And I hope that doesn't sound cheesy to say that, but it's true, you know, I'm, 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 way healthier than I've ever been my whole life, both mentally and physically. So the things that really would trigger me eight months ago don't quite have that same hold on me as they once did. I, I really sincerely do apologize if that triggered anything. And, you know, we, I, in general, I think I like to just joke around with people and you probably in general have learned some not the most effective ways to communicate with people all the time, which is instead of just say, hey, I'd love to hear about that, you know, maybe making a casual joke and that can put people on the defense. And maybe I just bring it up from the standpoint of we all could be more careful with how we talk to people because we don't necessarily know the backstory. And I I think we all want to be known and to know, really, because that's, and you said something else, is you know, you're ashamed of the things you did to yourself, and you don't need me to tell you, 
And as you tell us your story, you don't have to be ashamed. I mean, anybody would be looking for something that they control, that they can control when these kind of things have gone on in your life like they did. Will you, would you talk about Shannon and what she means? See your, your, your face kind of lit up there when I asked you, would you talk about Shannon? Tell me about Shannon. She, you know, I actually was going to say something about Shannon when you said you don't really know what someone's going through. So it's, I don't want people to walk, think they got to walk around like on eggshells with people, but it's so true. You really never know what someone's going through. And with that, that sparked a thought in my head, you know, Shannon, she struggles with her weight a lot and she's a lot better today than she was, you know, last year. Uh, But she is the type of person who just struggles with eating a little bit and hopefully she would not be offended by me talking about this because I think she is quite open about it because she wants to tell people too. But there are all the, all the time, all the time people will like make this comment about, oh, she's so skinny. Oh, she weigh, what does she weigh four pounds? Or what does she weigh this much when she's dripping wet? You know, like comments that people don't know are offensive because society doesn't tell them they're offensive. You know, like really the only thing you don't want to say is she's heavy. Talk about triggers too, right? When somebody's already going through um, the mental challenges behind certain, situ- you know, certain things that they struggle with. So right. sorry to interrupt you, but no, it's all right. Yeah, I mean, and people don't know that they're even offending her, and she's quite like me, where she's just too kind to say, "Hey, I didn't really like that you said that," but people don't quite realize that, you know, it's body weight and body image are just topics that most people don't realize they should not talk about. You know, because while they think they're being funny and nice. Oh, she's so skinny. What what could be wrong in her head? She struggled a lot to be where she's at today where they're still calling her way too skinny, you know? So it is, it's really important to just watch what you say to people, to be kind, you know? You don't know what each person, where they've stepped in their life. You don't know what they've gone through. And just because it's not something that you think is offensive, it could really make or break their day. And that's why I try to just show up to work and hi, how are you? Even if I'm sad, even if I'm depressed, it's, you know, you start that day off with a smile and being nice and it, it makes somebody happy. It, it helps somebody who's struggling, you know, even if you don't know it does, it, it does. There's a proverb that says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And I think that uh, that does ring true in our lives when we, when we're in the middle of our own struggles, if we can take our eyes off of ourselves just long enough to look at somebody else and say, how are things for you? Mm-hmm. And be real. Let them be real instead of just, uh, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. Things are fine. Well, sometimes we say that because we we want the outside world to think everything is fine. And some of it is just as constant social media pressure. And it could be body image. It could be, um, you know, sexual pressure. It could be financial. It could be I mean, any number of things. And we have this, this social media has become this drug to some degree that we all think we need and we don't realize how much damage that it's probably doing to us too. And back to Shannon, I mean, she's been, she's had a great impact in your life too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's helped me go through the hardest things. She's been there from the jump. You know, she does she does anything that she can do to protect me to make it better. Just the other night actually, I had a really, really, really bad panic attack and it was it was bad. Um I actually had to wake her up out of her bed. I think it was at midnight. I woke her up and I was like, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. I feel like I'm dying. I can't breathe. I feel like I'm dying. 
and we ended up just running out the front door and barefoot and walking up and down the street back and forth until I finally calmed down. But she was there for me, you know, and she's been there for me for a long time too. So that's the type of friendship where you really can't replace. Wow. Well, I want to ask this question and uh, I sort of asked it the other night and I really ask it in a a gentle way because I think everybody's in a different spot in life but you know as yeah, you talked about your partner Nick and I think um and, and you mentioned alluded to really feeling like you got bullied in high school and the abuse that you went through started when you were very young and so do you there's always a nature versus nurture question for you would being gay do you have think there's any inkling that it was what happened to you or did you always feel like hey this is this is um, who I am. I don't mind that you ask questions like that because if you're asking a question like that trying to just understand and learn, that's what's important. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you have these, if you already have these pre-assumptions, that's when it's offensive, but you're not offending me at all. Um, and part of asking too is because I think there's people out there that are like, is this, why do I, why am I attached to this abuser? Mm-hmm. And it might not have anything to do with it. And so I just wanted to hit, hit on that unless you hit on that a little bit. Yeah. It, I actually thought about that question and I was just talking with Chan about it. I was like, you know, I definitely don't think it had any impact on me, on my sexuality, but you know, with the things that have happened with Dennis, it's affected my sex life like tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really, I struggle with things like with the male anatomy and like doing certain things and uh, like, like calm stuff like that. Like I hate stuff like that. I hate calm. It just grosses me out. And I think that's because the first time I ever experienced something like that was with him and it's traumatic for me. And sure. Um, but I was thinking about, it, I was like, you know, you think if it did actually impact my sexuality, it would have made me straighter because I don't, really enjoy doing a lot of things sexually with guys even though i am attracted to to men i struggle a lot with them sexually because it's all a reminder of what it was like the first time i ever was with a man you know with, which was with dennis yeah uh-huh. so i feel like if it actually did impact me in a way it would have made me like a little bit more on the straighter side because then i wouldn't have to deal with that makes sense yeah yeah it, it and i uh, as i said just understanding the dynamic i think is important at least i feel like it's a it's an important topic and there are people that maybe have struggled there mentally going how do i how am i attached at all to this person that abused me for so long and why am i interested in this gender or that gender or whatever when because i i could i would have thought maybe it would have pushed you the other way you have a really good point you know like i hated what Dennis would do to me and you would think that if I hated what he was doing that much you think I wouldn't enjoy it outside of him Mm -hmm. but there's some things you just really don't have much control over and I don't you know there's a lot of people who always feel like I was born gay and maybe I was but I don't really have those thoughts because the first time I really started thinking about a guy was with my ex-partner that was the first time I ever had an experience like uh an emotional experience was with him um and before that i mean even whenever before nick and what during dennis when it first started i was with the girl for like two and a half years i was very much in love with her i enjoyed everything that we did something just switched it just flipped and Mm -hmm. i i I met nick i realized what i was actually attracted to for a minute i thought maybe i was bisexual but it's just not the case and it's crazy too because you know when all these things are happening and 
I know a lot of people will be able to relate to this. You th- you hate what's happening, but you're you still have an erection. You hate what's happening, but you're still able to orgasm. And then you 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 build this like serious serious like level of uh, being so ashamed of who you are. How did I did I enjoy this? Did I like this? You know you have those thoughts inevitably, and I think that's a big thing. With why it's so important to go to therapy because I struggled with those thoughts for years. Mm. You know, it went on for so long that it was my normal life. There were some days I would go over there, not necessarily initiating it, but I'd walk into the situation knowing what could happen. And I've carried so much shame for that. I, I was carrying so much shame. I carried so much guilt. And my therapist taught me, you know, with long-term trauma and abuse, that's so normal. Well, yeah. It, it leads me to this idea and thought that, you know, he, you were almost brainwashed into this condition that you chose it, you, you know, and even, I guess, Dennis at one point saying, well, it was, you know, something we agreed to or consensual or whatever in some way. And that's, I think, the, dyma- di- the dynamic that is hard to fathom, not from my end, but I think in your own situation, like, how do I keep, you, you know, it's causing you immense amount of pain and yet somehow you've come to think that I'm still want to walk in that door I still want to walk through that door and we want people to be well and we want people to be able to be who they are and whether you're whether someone is born gay becomes gay that's irrelevant as much as just feeling like they can genuinely be who they are and be accepted for who they are and uh, the the things that and, and ending up in a place where we don't feel like the things that happen to us define us instead whether we're homosexual heterosexual whether we're black white asian that we can be genuine and real and we can all have independent thought and we might not always agree and we can still appreciate and value each other even if I don't think just the way you think about a subject right. or vice versa. Absolutely. So yeah. that, that would be a good place for us all to get to. The other place, and we'll, we'll get, we're almost done here. And, you know, I think you mentioned, I flipped at one point to the thought of what happened to Dennis. I mean, in his past. And part of me just says, we have to figure out a way how to end these cycles because the cycle of abuse continues when somebody is abused and they eventually become the abuser what can we do to stop the cycle and maybe you have a maybe you have thoughts on that and maybe it's just talking about it is helpful talking about it is helpful uh i feel like i've said this a few times now but therapy 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 is the most important thing even for dentists today you know i know i said i never wish ill words ill thoughts and words on someone and I hope today that he's getting help that he needs because you know I don't know if it's really fixable and the state that he's in but it's preventable and I don't know if they can change who he is but they can work on it you know and prevent it from happening again and the most important thing is to go to therapy to talk about what you're doing because I it almost is like your brain stops developing when that trauma and that abuse starts you stop developing and then you're in that state of mind and then typically what can happen is you you repeat those behaviors because that's what you know that's in you know you you look for somebody the same age that you were when it's when it happened to you um that's why it's so important to go to therapy and get the help that you need and talk about things because that was a legitimate fear of mine i'll be completely honest with you i would tell her 
you know, I'm so paranoid. I feel like, what if my family thinks like, God, what if Joe ends up like this? Or what if my family's like, I don't want him around my kids. Like that is a serious, serious fear and insecurity of mine that they could have those thoughts. Like I, I pray every day that they don't ever think that way of me. But I would talk to her about it all the time, my therapist. Like, you know, I'm so scared. Like, what could this happen to me? Is this what's, is this my future? Is this just what I'm unfortunately, you know, doomed to end up like? And she's like, no, this is, you're getting the help you need. This is how you stop the pattern. This is how, you know, getting help, going to therapy, talking about what's happened to you. That's how you fix and don't prevent the repeated behavior. And, you know, she would even say things like, I think if you were going to repeat, the behavior it would have already happened you know i'm almost 28 years old so just answering your question again like i don't think people really utilize therapy as much as they should and they don't realize how serious it is and especially today's age we're in a serious like mental health crisis and it's so so important that people get help and talk to even if it's their friends and their family they talk about what's happened and I hope that me talking about it today, it inspires someone to be like, you know what, I'm gonna make an appointment with a therapist, or you know what, I'm gonna call my mom and tell her what, what happened to me. Because it consumes your life. My sister and I, she's come out about it, so I, don't, I just wanna make it clear I'm not outing her. But she came out about something after I did too. And I think it took me coming out to help her come tell her story as well. So I hope that if, if if all people take away from this podcast today is that they can share their story, even if it's not sexual abuse, if it's something else, I hope that's all they take away from it, or at least what they take away from it. When you, uh, when, when your situation came out, when you came out on this situation, what words would you wish your mom would have said to you? And would somebody who, if someone was a, is a victim and they report it, what's the best thing that they could hear from? Their loved one. I hear you. I believe you. I think the biggest one is I believe you. I'm here for you. You know, something my mom actually said was, you know, she never wants to leave me home alone again. I mean, at that point, I was a full-blown adult. But she still said the words, like, I never want to leave you home alone again. And that quickly changed, unfortunately. Uh, I feel like her thought patterns changed after that, which is unfortunate. Just hearing the words, like, I believe you. I hear you. I'm, I'm here for you can make the biggest difference. You know, I think that if things happened differently when I came out about it, I wouldn't have carried even more trauma from the aftermath of it, you know, because I, I know I said this already, but I really feel like the coming out process was just as bad as the years of the abuse. You know, uh, dealing with the court and the police and being questioned, I don't think it was, you could quite label it as interrogation, but when I had to answer a bunch of questions from his lawyer, it was, it was scary. It was so scary. And just having the support and having people tell me they believe me, they hear me, they want to fight for me, fight for me, that those would be the biggest things that you could do for someone like that. Because society always wants to protect the predator. They always want to protect the predator and they want to shame the victim. And we have to stop that. We have to fix that. Yeah, to me, there's no doubt that we have to put the victim in a spot where they feel like it's safe to talk. Yeah. Too long we've left the victim in a place feeling like they're going to get victimized again if they talk. Mm -hmm. And that probably the hardest, that's one of the hardest things to balance in our society is this idea that somebody is innocent till proven guilty. And you know, how do you reconcile this thought process that, I, okay, well, I, I kind of have to, how do I, how do I believe, but also let the, let the truth come out so that I know it's the truth. And 
I really am cautious when I say that because the most important thing is that the victim gets heard and we can also get to a dangerous place maybe where if everybody knows if if people know I can just say this about this person you could quickly destroy somebody's life if it's just used as a weapon to I know how to really ruin somebody right and so uh, I hope it comes across that I'm very sensitive that that's that's part of the problem is this idea that well if the victim says this and it's it's responded to that way then they go back into their shell so does that does that make sense yeah yeah and you know going off that i was really scared when i went to the police i was really really absolutely terrified when the trial started i didn't think i stood a chance because a it's missouri uh it's two men in missouri um i'm gay like the, the things that were already staggering against me, but, and I didn't have like my own specific lawyer. I think she just worked for the state, but we won the case and the judge heard me, you know, I had to write this, um, this letter up that they read during the case and, and he heard me and, you know, Dennis pled guilty. That was the biggest thing for me. He pled guilty to the two felonies and a misdemeanor and all I wanted the most important thing that I wanted was that he pled guilty because then I knew that people would believe me. And the fact that he'd be a registered sex offender, so I knew that he hopefully could never do this again. The judge was so moved by the story that he actually did put him in jail. It was only for four months, but he pled guilty to no time. That was the deal he took was no time and the judge gave him time on his own. Hopefully that inspires someone in a similar situation where they feel like they're not going to be heard. They're not going to be seen. They're not going to believe them that, you know, I felt the same way. I didn't think I was going to win. The, the, the lawyer for the state didn't think I was going to win either. She prepared me many times that you're probably not going to win. And I won and he, he was guilty and he went to jail and he's a registered sex offender to this day. You know, I do think the system needs a lot of work because for the most part, many, many cases, people are not found guilty. And if they're found guilty, they don't get nearly as much punishment as they should. But I hope, you know, with the Me Too movement and doing podcasts like this and normalizing the conversation of sexual assault and abuse and pedophilia, that it starts a little wave of change within the legal system. Yeah, I am aware of some friends who have had their seen their children go through some violent sexual abuse from from their closest family members and the system doesn't validate them and you deserve that validation i'm i'm glad for you i'm very glad for you that you at least got that validation yeah and uh, i hope the system changes such that that kind of validation becomes more uh, more often the result for people who go through things as awful as you went through. Uh, we're very lucky to have you as as uh, as a team member and an advocate for sharks and seeing you grow into your role. And I, I feel like it's um, it's significant to have this conversation with you for me because it, it it's your you still deal with the things you deal you've dealt with every day. I I have. I'm hearing you can correct me if that's if I'm interpreting that incorrectly and uh, it's also significant to see you be so successful in your role such a vital member of our team and, and I don't that probably doesn't happen unless you feel like you're getting healthier is that fair yeah oh yeah I wouldn't be able to work today if I wasn't 
healthy and in a good state of mind. So definitely. Well, you are you are absolutely loved here. Uh, I am uh, praying that this conversation really reaches the people that it needs to reach. As as uh, is always my heartfelt, earnest desire, and uh, I also. Uh, have a strong hope that for you this is a, a great part of your process. What do you, last question I'll ask you is will you talk to your therapist about, hey, I had this conversation with Corey and I was on this podcast, and what do you think that conversation will, how will that go? I think I'll tell her what I did and she will be blown away that I felt the courage to tell my story to an audience. Um, I think that she will be so proud. Because when I first met her, when I first started, I wasn't where I am today. So I think she'll be really proud. Awesome. Well, I think it takes a, trem- it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And you're really doing great things. I, I told you this the other night. And I'll tell you this again. Admire you immensely. Thank, Thank you. you for spending time with me. It, it's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. And uh, you, you did it very well. Thank you. Thank you so much. At the end of my last conversation with with Dr. Kristen Ernst really felt like I had indicated we were supposed to attack this stigma and the idea behind mental health issues. And when you get intentional about these things, I have found in my own life that uh, sometimes things sort of fall into your lap or uh, sort of like the conversation that happened with Joe and, and going to the baseball game with he and Shannon last week or a couple nights ago, at, rather. And uh, it was apparent to me that he could have an impact after I, it was obvious that he was willing to share his story. So texted him and said, hey, you want to do a podcast? I th- Actually, I came in in the morning and said, hey, would you be interested in doing a podcast? And then Really, just last night, I texted him and said, hey, you want to do this podcast in the morning? I'd much rather do it in person. And so uh, it's it was um, his story is incredibly heartfelt, and it really tugs at me in so many ways. And I hope it gives a lot of people courage at the end of the day to share their story, to feel like they can be heard, to feel like they can be known, and to feel like there's a way out of the situation and the and the despair that they might be in and I really admire Joe he's come so far in his own personal journey and I believe there's there are others that can get that can can begin to get to the other side of the place where they are now that feels like utter despair so we're going to keep getting after this these other issues there are so many other issues around mental health and other things that lead to the challenging mental states for people that can lead them to places of despair and isolation and loneliness and depression and it ought not be that way we need to care about each other more so we'll look forward to continuing discussions like these and we will see you next time on running eyes